Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. The Mekong River is one of the world's great rivers. From its source in the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau, it snakes down through southern China and then borders or runs through all of the countries of mainland Southeast Asia, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam. Almost 70 million people depend either directly or indirectly on the Mekong for their livelihoods. It's the world's largest inland freshwater fishery. It's also a place of great ecological and human diversity. Until recently, the Mekong was also one of the world's least tanked rivers, but that has rapidly changed. Last Days of the Mighty Mekong documents this huge disruption, both to the Mekong's ecosystem and to the lives of the people who depend upon it, caused by rampant dam construction, tourism development, pollution, and not to mention climate change. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to the book's author, Brian Isler. Brian is Senior Fellow and Southeast Asian Program Director at the Stimson Centre, a think tank which works on solutions to non-traditional security issues. Brian, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. I really learned so much from it. Thanks, Patrick. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, normally the authors we interview on this channel are Southeast Asianists, but the focus of your work is really the borderlands between China and Southeast Asia, where you've lived and worked for many years. Before we get on to talking about the book, can you tell us a bit about your background and work in this region? And then what drew you to write this book? I'm by training a China economist. And ever since my undergraduate days, more than 20 years ago, I envisioned myself as someone who studied the Chinese economy uh, and promoted better relations between China and the United States. I, I kind of found the Mekong in Southeast Asia accidentally through developing a real love and passion for the mountainous areas of Southwest China and, uh, and Yunnan province and living in city in a city like Kunming in Yunnan, the capital of Yunnan, on and off for six or seven years of my life, doing graduate school research there, studying there even before that, and in undergraduate days back in the last century. And in fact, it was during those days where I first saw the Mekong. I flew to Sichuan Bana in 1999 because you couldn't take a car from Kunming to Sichuan Bana in less than 24 hours. In fact, it was a 24-hour straight shot through the mountains. Apparently, everyone described it as the most harrowing ride of your life. So I took a plane down to Sichuan Bana to Jinghong 
And, and I, as I was standing alongside of a river, I mean, I was a kid at that time. I didn't know my geography so well. Someone pointed at, at a river and said, that's the Mekong. And, and from here, it goes into Southeast Asia. And it took me about four or five more years to actually explore the river. But I came into the Mekong from China. I actually boarded a boat in China and floated down the Mekong on that boat. It's one of these cargo ships that I talk about in the book from Xichuan Bana in China to the Golden Triangle in Thailand. And, and that was my introductory experience to Southeast Asia coming from China. So that really colored my initial view of the Mekong region. But, you know, the more time that I spent in Southeast Asia, the more I saw how unique, well, uniquely different, uh, obviously, the Mekong, the lower Mekong is from China's portions of the upper Mekong. But at the same time, I saw a lot of commonalities. And, and over a long period of time, dams are being built, highways are being linked up, and more and more people are flowing through the region. And this region began to change uh, faster than anyone could imagine. So I thought it was high time to write on it. But my first writing experience on the Mekong wasn't through writing a book. I had a blog called East by Southeast, which I started with a friend of mine. And it became quite popular and caught the eye of um, Zed Books, the publisher of, of, of my book. And Zed reached out and said, hey, you know, so much is happening in the Mekong. Would you like to write a book about it? And from there, you know, the rest is history, so they say. One of the most impressive aspects of the book for me I imagine one of the, the challenges for you in writing it was it's a real multinational effort. So you've talked to Chinese, Lao, Thais, Cambodians, Vietnamese, not to mention various ethnic minorities, both in, in southern China and in mainland Southeast Asia, whose, whose lives all depend on the river. How difficult was it logistically to research this book? Well, I profile over 100 people in the book. And, and you know, I'm in the book too. I, I'm uh, relaying experiences. I'm having conversations with people. And I use this mode of, of storytelling to take the reader to these particular landscapes and communities and, and riverside areas that are being impacted. Those 100 people who are profiled, they're from China, they're from Laos, they're from Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. And it was quite a, a, a feat. You know, I speak Chinese at uh, a native level, so I didn't need a translator in China. In fact, I understand many of the, the, the dialects of Southwest China as well, uh, just from living there for a number of years. Uh, but when I did go to the region, I, I visited communities that I have been visiting for years. So very few of the people that are interviewed and profiled in the book are new discoveries. Uh, and I think that helps to... Uh, you know, telling their tale and, and trusting from my experience with them to know that what they're saying is true because, you know, it's something that I've seen develop over time. I think really helps ground the book and what the book's message is or what its numerous messages are in, in some real local truth. But many of my interviews in, the, in Southeast Asia were done with fixers and translators and, and the help of, of guides. So, you know, I'm really indebted to the scores of people who assisted with putting the book together. One of the themes that runs through the book is the, the great diversity, both ecological and human, of the right. Mekong River Basin. It's one of the most ethnically and culturally diverse regions in this world. Can you tell us why? That's a great question. I think there, there's a connection between the, the human diversity as well as the ecological or the, the biological diversity. I mean, humans are part of biological diversity. And, you know, we, didn't, we know that 
biodiversity happens from unique ecological processes, as well as isolation in the, the mountainous valleys of the Yunnan province is what makes like the Mekong Valley, the canyon valleys of the Mekong, the, the biodiversity there and plants and animals entirely different from the biodiversity of plants and animals in the next valley over, like in the Salween River Basin, which is the single most basin for biodiversity in, in the world. So these remote areas and in varied climates that are divided by mountains and rivers have provided for an enormous amount of, of diversity human included. But the human processes are, are a little bit different from kind of the natural evolutionary processes that occurred throughout the Mekong Basin. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are tall tales and folk tales and legends of, uh, in China and Thailand and Laos that like the ancient ancestors came out of the hills and, you know, the people developed from backwardness into something modern, you know, so people living in lowland agricultural plains or developing into urban areas, that there's some type of, of um, development trajectory that starts in the backwoods and the hills and then ends in the cities. That's kind of the, the general narrative. But what anthropologists have found is that the diversity of the people in the hills of the Mekong, and there are hundreds of different ethnic groups in the Mekong Basin, and most of them are up in the hills, actually are a response and a reaction to what happened in the lowland. And the story kind of begins in China of China's empires rising and falling in central China and other parts of China. And each time there's this rise and this fall, there's a casting out of peoples on the margins of those empires, as well as you know, armies that seek to bring people in to make them Chinese or, or even Thai in Thailand and make them Thai. On these margins, those on the margins have the opportunity to choose. Many of them say, I don't want to do this. Where do they go? Well, they go up. They go up into the hills where they can escape these armies. They can't drag their carts up into the hills. And when these people on the margins run up into the hills, you know, as a response to what's happening on the lowland, they were once lowlanders, they create their own ethnic identity. And, and anthropologists like James Scott say that all these different marginal groups ended up in these different isolated areas and they were able to create their own thing. And, and they were able to maintain that distance from the lowland for centuries, again, because the, the machinery of the state just couldn't march itself up and dominate them up until today. So one of the themes that we look at in the book is how these Zomians and James Scott describes Zomia as a, an area in Southwest China and Southeast Asia above 300 meters. That these areas um, have to today been able to maintain their ethnic autonomy. And, but now the state actually has the capability through modern technology to pave roads, to put in cell phone towers, to fly helicopters in and point guns at people who could typically keep the armies out and, and dominate the hills. Um, and that paves the way for remapping the hills, for extracting uh, mineral resources out of mines, for building dams. And to do that, you've got to move people around. And so now many of these countries are in the process of depopulating the hills. And and the Zomian identity or the, the numerous identities of Zomians are 
are threatened. Just as the, the, the flora and fauna, particularly the fauna of the Mekong, are also threatened by human development. So that's where the kind of um, homogenization of both human experience as well as uh, biodiversity experience uh, converge in the Mekong. Before I read your book, I didn't realize that over half of the length of the Mekong is in China, where the river is right. known as the, the Lansang River. And yeah. you write that until recently, most people in China, even government officials, didn't know that the Lansang and the Mekong were the same river. Has that changed now? Well, it's certainly changed. About 10 years ago, Tom Fothrap, who's a veteran author and journalist of, of all things Mekong, somebody that certainly follow if you're interested in following the Mekong, he captured on a documentary video a Chinese official saying exactly what you just said. Uh, well, you know, in our country, there's the Lansong River, in the uh, downstream, there's the Mekong, and these are two totally different rivers. So, you know, why are we talking about downstream impacts? But by and large, that's changed as you see more pairings of the names in the official pronouncements of, of China's cooperative frameworks, policy frameworks to lower Mekong countries. Lansong Mekong or Mekong Lansong cooperation mechanism activities uh, that are seeking to see the region as one. But you know, all that said, it's a really fragmented region. The Tongli Sap, um, which we'll talk about later, is the beating heart of the Mekong. It's the largest body of water, largest lake in Southeast Asia, from which 500,000 tons of fish are harvested every year, and it feeds the Cambodian people 70% of their protein intake. You know, what happens in the Tongli Sap is critically important, not just for the people of Cambodia, but for, for fish catches all throughout the entirety of the Mekong, far upstream. You know, there are just so many people in Thailand and Laos that, that don't know where or what the Tongli Sap is, uh, let alone, you know, in China. So there's a lot, just, just a lot of disconnect. And we're talking about a, a really uh, long north to south oriented basin of over 4,000 kilometers. So it's not surprising. The Mekong, you know, the stronger countries, the stronger states, the, the, the better governed states, if you will, in the Mekong are China. Thailand, Vietnam, all of their capitals are located far away from the Mekong. They're not in the Mekong. So all of these stronger states view the Mekong Basin as this kind of other marginal, external, exterior zone that's either a buffer zone between the other states or a zone to go and develop. And that causes a lot of uh, disconnect and, and a lack of understanding what's really unique and what can be conserved and what's what's special about the mighty Mekong. Perhaps the single most serious threat to the Mekong, and you go into it in great deal, detail in the book, is the construction of dams. Can you tell us about this boom in dam construction on the Mekong and also its tributaries and explain to us what effect damming is having on the river and the peoples who depend on it? You know, in my professional capacity, I work a lot on on dams and smart planning of dams, uh, promoting how renewables like solar and wind can replace dams that have yet to be built. And whenever I uh, tell friends and colleagues that I wrote a book about the Mekong, they expect to read a book that's just about dams. <laughs> really, they find something else. But dams are a central theme of what threatens the Mekong and what is changing the Mekong from a quote-unquote, untamed space to a harnessed and managed space from a, a living and free-flowing system that provides 
really important natural resources for that 70 million people that you listed earlier at a very low cost to harnessing the river and turning it into a disconnected, dead, non-flowing river system where if you want to make it do the work for people, you've got to make it work with, with engineering. And that's what dams do. Damming the Mekong has long been part of um, um, numerous versions of development plans. Uh, it start, actually started with the United States uh, in the 1950s, the late 50s. The U.S. saw a way to build dams uh, and transfer the Tennessee Valley Authority experience of the Great Depression, harnessing America's rivers, the powers of America's rivers for economic development to the Mekong as a way to um, promote U.S. foreign policy, push back on an expanding China uh, within the context of the Cold War and Soviet Union expansion, uh, and to link these countries up for economic development. Later on, those dam plans were positioned to bring Ho Chi Minh to negotiate with Lyndon Johnson for peace on the Vietnam War, but Ho Chi Minh wanted nothing to do with it. And the Vietnam War actually took the plans for damming the Mekong off the shelves for a really long time, and it wasn't until the mid-90s that China started building dams on the upstream where a signal was sent downstream saying, hey, well, if China can do it, so can we, um, because the kind of the wilder parts of the upper Mekong are being tamed and regulated so much so that it makes sense to build dams downstream. Laos, being a landlocked country with few development options, said we can become the battery of Southeast Asia. We can make building dams our number one economic development priority build lots of dams, sell power to the neighborhood. And so these countries set forward the pathway for developing dams, so Cambodia included. And China, year by year, decade by decade, um, started building some of the largest dams in the world in its portion of the upper Mekong. There's the Nojadu Dam, which generates over 5,000 megawatts of electricity. It came online in 2012. Its reservoir if you're familiar with the United States, it holds half as much water as what's in the Chesapeake Bay. It's huge. It's 23 billion cubic meters of water. It's a lot of water. Uh, Ten more mega dams have been built in China over the last um, three decades. And then farther downstream in Laos, uh, Laos now, now has over 100 dams either completed or under construction on the Mekong mainstream or in tributaries. Two are on the Mekong mainstream and the rest are on tributaries. And no one really ever saw these tributary dams coming. And, and part of that story is support that the World Bank gave for building tributary dams in Laos. It's something I missed in the book. I didn't tell that story. And if I go back and do a revision, I will. But the development finance sectors and foreign assistance sectors all kind of jumped onto Laos's plan to become the battery of Southeast Asia. And now we have this proliferation of dams. What those dams do is, I mean, they generate a lot of electricity. Actually, a lot of them don't have markets for their electricity, even though they're just, you know, they're just kind of sitting there. Those dams cut off critically important flows, one being the natural hydrological cycle of the Mekong River. The river year on year transitions from a wet season of, of floods that are productive for the people of the Mekong, the driving agriculture uh, driving the fish population, and then the subsequent fish catch. And then it, it transitions to an extreme dry, low season. So you have these ups and downs year and year. The ebb and flow of the Mekong is driven by this natural hydrological cycle. And then what's moving through the river 
are fish and sediment. Fish move both ways, up and down, moving downstream to to find a habitat, moving upstream to spawn each year. And, and then sediment is moving, a lot of it comes from China, just moving downstream, going into the Tonle Sap, out of the Tonle Sap, down to the Mekong Delta to fertilize fields, to underpin the, the food sources of this, this massive fish population as well, um, as well as to keep the, like, the river system geologically integrated, to keep the, the banks of the river whole. But dams destroy all of that, especially the poorly built ones. Those in China, like, there are, there's no mitigation for fish migration up and down through those dams. China has half the sediment, 60% of the sediment, um, in the Mekong system. And there's there's no mitigation to let sediment flush through those dams and to the downstream. And then importantly, dams regulate the river. So they take the high out and they reduce the low. They, they bring the highs down and, and take the lows up to create a, a dead, non-dynamic river system. And it's extremely unfortunate, all done in the name of development, in the name of meeting electricity demand that really doesn't have to be met by hydropower projects. And this is a, a theme that's playing out throughout the entirety of the Mekong Basin. Every country that's in the Mekong Basin is building lots of dams, and that's a problem. At this point, we need to pause for a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, I'd like to discuss on a more optimistic note some of the measures that are being taken to address uh, the challenges faced by the Mekong. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Brian Tyler about his new book, Last Days of the Mighty Mekong. Brian, in media reports about the environmental problems on the Mekong, China tends to be portrayed as the, the bad guy. Many dams have been built on the Lansung section of the Mekong, as you just told us about. And in mainland Southeast Asia, many of the dams that are being built there are financed by Chinese investors and sometimes constructed by Chinese firms, even using Chinese labour. As a China hand, as it were, is it too simplistic to blame the Mekong's problems on China? Yes and no. I think my book presents a much, well, I mean, it does, a much more nuanced picture. Um, who's at fault? Where do the problems come from? Where are the drivers of negative change in the Mekong? And you know, I'm critical of all the countries, of all the governments, um, even Vietnam, which is the most vehemently opposed to damming the Mekong. And I run the reader through uh, how over the last 200 years, the Vietnamese have over-engineered the Mekong Delta by building too many dikes and too many canals and too many sluice gates. That is, the Mekong and the Delta long lost its mightiness. So the Delta actually represents what the future of the rest of an engineered Mekong might be. You know, the criticisms, while the criticisms of Vietnam are worthy, the Vietnamese are right-coursing. Um, they're talking about a, a new development plan that restores the natural ecosystem properties of the Mekong Delta uh, and, and make the, the Delta mighty once again. But none of that will work if the countries upstream continue to do what they're doing. And like I said, each of the countries of the Mekong, Thailand and Cambodia included, would like to disconnect the river system by building large dams. 
Cambodia and Thailand more recently have become more vocal against large dams on the Mekong, even though both still kind of have plans to do so. And in the book, I talk about certain factions, political factions within governments, as well as civil society groups or NGOs that are actively advocating against dams and providing very rational, evidence-based, business-oriented arguments over why dams are a really bad idea for the Mekong. There's a similar set of stakeholders in China that are fighting for protection of rivers, uh, fighting for promotion of ethnic identity and preservation of ethnic identity that is torn apart by these modes of, of, of rapid development. But China, <laughs> more and more so, has kind of stepped forward as kind of the bad guy in, in the whole process. And this is actually came out after the... Uh, the book was published, but uh, and it's a result of some work that, that I did with uh, promoting the study of a, a climate consultancy called Eyes on Earth earlier this year, who came up with a really good study that actually for the first time convincingly shows the extent of damage China's 11 upstream Mekong dams are doing. And it's profound. And it's all being done without any transparency, without any coordination or communication to the downstream. And there's either ignorance or there is some type of you know pernicious plot to geopolitically bring the countries of the lower Mekong to the heel of China. I tend to side on the, the, the side of ignorance that, that China just doesn't care or doesn't know what those downstream impacts are. And I think that's that's even worse than having a plan. But this Eyes on Earth study found that during the last year, the lower Mekong in 2019 And in 2020, this year as well, both years, two years in a row, experienced very abnormally dry, wet seasons. And there had always been speculation that when these things had happened in the past, that China's upstream dams had something to do with it, with a lack of driving the pulse through the Mekong by holding water back. But this Eyes on Earth study, for the first time, showed in 2019 just how much water was actually held back. And it was enough to, again, neuter that flood pulse, the the starting kickoff point of that flood pulse at a time when the downstream countries really, really needed that water. You know, China's denied those claims. Uh, They categorically denied uh, the validity of this study, even before I think the Chinese foreign ministry read it. China's foreign ministry threw it in in the trash can. And since then, they've actually turned the story around and some scientists from Tsinghua University are now saying that China's dams do a, a whole lot of good for the lower countries by reducing the flood pulse and, and releasing water during the dry season to provide more water in the dry season. And that's the last thing the Mekong needs. That's, that's the type of alteration to the Mekong's hydrological flow that will kill the Mekong. So there is a fight on for the future of the Mekong on how river regulation is either the right thing or the absolute wrong thing for the Mekong River. And it's playing out now. It's something that's happened or ratcheted up since uh, since my book has been published. It can be easy to get depressed when you hear about these things. But one of the things I really liked about this book is that while you in no way downplay the seriousness of the challenges that face the Mekong, uh, the book also offers, offers uh, glimmers of hope. For example, as you said a little bit earlier, the, the a slowing and apparent slowing in the demand for hydropower, the increasing competitiveness of other forms of renewable, renewable energy like uh, wind, solar, and uh, I think you mentioned biomass as well. 
how optimistic are you that these things will make a real difference to the you know, the situation that the Mekong's in today? These renewable energy projects are really disrupting the planning processes and the hydropower developers and investors have banked on for decades. You know, Laos wanting to be the battery of Southeast Asia and embarking on this journey back in the end of the 90s. I, I don't think the Lao PDR government stakeholders that were thinking of this, as well as other development finance institutions, multilateral development banks um, and investors, they didn't do a SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. What are the threats? Might this all be threatened by some disruptive technology that pops up 10, 15 years from now, like solar and wind? They didn't think that through. You know, whenever I think the Lao government was thinking about this battery of Southeast Asia thing, they were looking around at Thailand and Vietnam and said, okay, you know, Thailand's going to max out its ability to produce electricity from gas and it can't build any more dams because there's, the regulation regimes are too high and onerous there. And Thailand probably won't build a lot of coal because of the pollution industry. Yeah, all that happened. Vietnam, similar story. Vietnam will, it will exhaust its own domestic power generation resources and come to us and buy lots of power from us. China to the north is always going to need power, right? I mean, these are the things that they were thinking. And that all changed. So these all these new, you know, inside your country, domestic uh, energy generation, power generation options that can help meet domestic power demand in Thailand and Vietnam and China. China is never going to buy power from Laos or Southeast Asia because it's got so much going on inside. And uh, and now Laos is kind of left holding the bag with dams that just don't have a market. And at the same time, we have you know gains in efficiency, LED lighting, all these things that reduce the demand for electricity. Yet new shopping malls are going up in Bangkok. And there's a saying out there that one shopping mall is linked up to one big dam in Laos. And then that is true to, to some extent. And there are shopping malls in Bangkok that consume more power than far-flung provinces in Thailand, the entire province combined versus one shopping mall. So, so there still is a, you know, there's a system that is potentially linking up power demand markets with dams in Laos, those power demand markets outside of Laos. But it's really got the Lao government with their hands in the air, so much so that There have been two mainstream dams built. There are a handful of other mainstream dams that have gone through the Mekong River Commission's consulting process and and notification process that these dams will be built. But like the Pak Bang Dam went through that process, I believe, in 2017. And this would be the most upstream dam in Laos. And it hasn't broken ground yet because nobody has shown up to sign an agreement to purchase the power from it. If you don't have that those agreements, then you can't get the financing to build the dam, and the dam won't move forward. And a number of other dams have fallen into this category. All that being said, there's still 100 dams that are, have been completed or, or under construction just in Laos alone. But somewhere between, you know, like the 130 that are built in the entirety of the Mekong and the 500 that could be built by, say, 2050. Um, So really, there are plans for something like 500 dams uh, throughout all the countries of the Mekong, in the Mekong Basin. You know, it's it's really anyone's guess right now as to how many will be built. 
I think there's a lot of momentum out there to have fewer and fewer dams built. So much so that, you know, really, we're just a few years away from battery storage technology, essentially making renewable energy from solar and wind power free. And, and these things are going to outcompete hydropower projects very quickly, especially as more of the externalized cost of hydropower, like fish loss, loss of land as sediment is being pulled out of the river, as those costs are, are then internalized and, and come to bear in the region. So I really do think hydropower's days are numbered in the region, but it will only take a handful of poorly placed dams to really undo the, the mightiness of the Mekong. So there's still a lot more work to do. In theory, the Mekong does have an organization to manage its resources in a sustainable way, the right. Mekong River Commission. And it, it's made up of represent, representatives from Laos, from Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Though interestingly, uh, not China. I was right. going to ask you how effective uh, has this organization been? You know, I, I think there's there's hope out there for the Mekong River Commission. There are a lot of misinterpretations of what the Mekong Agreement from which the MRC is derived set out to do. And that's caused a lot of uh, kind of a lot, a loss and a lack of faith in the Mekong River Commission. You know, I, I think that whenever people hear, oh, there's a transboundary river organization that once was widely heralded as the the Earth's best um, river basin organization or, or a, a torchbearer for developing countries, that they would expect that there's some type of mechanism built into the organization for, say, a downstream country to veto what an upstream country wants to do. And like that was never part of the Mekong River Commission. So we shouldn't walk into uh, looking at the Mekong River Commission with that type of expectation. The way I think about the Mekong River Commission is that it's it's an excellent source of data for learning about the Mekong, conducting research on the Mekong, uh, the MRC, has a number of gauges um, in the lower Mekong. There's nothing in the upper Mekong, but the MRC has been pushing and pushing and pushing for years for more data transparency from China. This year alone, the MRC stepped out loudly twice in the, the, the aftermath of this Eyes on Earth study, saying twice, China, you need to share your data with us because we know something is going on up there. And doing exactly what I just said, communicating with China, communicating with other partners, uh, and, and these data provisions, research, communications, negotiations all have, I think, deepened and they become more and more local, locally run by Mekong stakeholders themselves rather than like old white men who have been working in the development sector forever. Um, that's no longer the case for the Mekong River Commission. Another process that the MRC carries out is a technical review of mainstream dams, uh, as well as carrying out what's called the PNPCA process. It's the prior notification and prior consultation and agreement process. It's kind of a long acronym, but essentially it, it, it brings uh, stakeholders and government stakeholders and non-government stakeholders together to review each mainstream dam as it is presented and announced by the countries that want to build them, namely Laos and Cambodia are the only two that would build dams on the mainstream of the Mekong, the lower Mekong. And each time the, these, these review processes and PNPCA processes 
have happened, the end result is producing a damn design that is quote unquote better than what was presented. And here better means more sophisticated fish passage for fish mitigation and, and guaranteed flushing gates for sediment, like the things that the Chinese dams just don't have. And, and the dams are all now designed to be run-of-the-river dams, which means they, they don't store water for long periods of time. And from an engineering perspective, they have less impact on the Mekong's hydrological cycle. Now, all that said, the dams still do their damage. The uh, run-of-the-river dam can be as damaging to a hydrological cycle as, as a storage dam if it's built in the wrong place and managed in the wrong way. The fish passages like that came out of the Sayaburi dams, this is the first big dam built on the lower Mekong and Laos, were designed based on salmon passages on the Columbia River and Washington State. Those are used for moving big fish that are all quite similar. The Mekong has up to a thousand different species of fish moving through it at one time of all varying sizes and weights. So, I mean, those, there's a lot of skepticism to throw at those fish passages. And unfortunately, the very active advocacy community that's out there to save the Mekong and to promote not building dams through alternatives and and more inclusive processes, they've stopped attending these uh, MRC meetings because they view the MRC as an ineffective organization for meeting the, the kind of outcomes that they want to achieve. From the other end of the spectrum, your book gives a lot of attention to the activism of local communities along oh, yeah. the Mekong who are you know, drawing attention to the problems they're facing. It, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, but one of the problems that they face is that none of the states that border the Mekong are particularly democratic. Are, are the political systems in these countries, are, are they an obstacle also to addressing the problems uh, of the local communities along the Mekong? Each country has its own mixed bag of experiences with how well civil society groups and communities and and international actors can or cannot come together to promote better outcomes. Laos, one is, you know, it's, it's, it's probably ranks highest in its level of authoritarian control in the lower Mekong. There is no civil society. Except you can find some examples of where international NGOs are helping and are working with some communities, even in Laos. Um, So in the book, I talk about WWF fish conservation zones in Laos at the 4,000 islands area of southern Laos that have effectively protected an important fishing habitat from overfishing. Uh, over the years. And that similar story then transfers to Cambodia, where on the Tonle Sap, IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And I love the story that I tell in, in the Tonle Sap chapter, the, the chapter eight in the book. There's a community at the bottleneck of the Tonle Sap. For the longest time, they've had, they had this development assistance program from Japan. They had that one from the EU and and, you know, at least these foreign governments kind of showed up, dangled their money in front, did this and that, and then left. And, and everyone, again, had their hands in there. What next? And, and they kind of lost confidence and faith in any of these outside groups coming in and being able to do anything. And then one day IUCN showed up and said, your community is located close to a really important pool within the Tonle Sap, for a deep pool for fish um, habitats. And... And you need to stop fishing there. And if you stop fishing there, then you'll have more fish. And for fishers who have been used to, you know, fishing a kind of a regular clip, 
to tell them not to fish, it's really hard. It's hard for them to take that deal. Um, but with some work, the IUCN staff, which were which were local staff, uh, convinced them to set up a fish conservation zone that is now kind of an exemplary best case for and best practice for fish conservation in Cambodia. Then it's working. They stopped fishing the zone, and now they catch more fish year on year. But then we can go to, you know, you can go to Vietnam and Thailand where civil society is more active. Interestingly, in Vietnam, civil society groups, academia, uh, and the government are all mostly aligned against dams upstream. So you have this this power that comes out of Vietnam and is, is quite effective. In Thailand, the experience has been a lot more difficult, I would say. Not to say there, are, there aren't difficulties in Vietnam. Certainly, Vietnam has its own mixed record with monitoring and the government arresting um, civil society and NGO leaders um, and imprisoning them. But, but in Thailand, communities have racked up some real victories over the years. They're showing the world how community-level activism that is smartly organized and is based on local knowledge can really drive some effective solutions forward for cultural preservation for uh, high value agriculture, you know, getting away from like monoculture and moving into organics and, um, and importantly for conserving the Mekong. Uh, there is a group in Northern Thailand that I profile that actually this year stopped Chinese engineers from blasting rapids in the Mekong far outside of China uh, in their backyard, in this community group's backyard. And if those rapids were blasted, then both Chinese cargo ships, the ones that I first went to the, the Mekong and to Thailand on, uh, as well as, as many think Chinese brownwater Navy ships could get through that area deep down in the Thai Lao border. And they, for two decades, very effectively organized efforts to go out and stop these engineers from surveying the rapids each time the engineers showed up and they got more and more sophisticated. And like with the last few rounds, they were using drones with live streams on Facebook. And, and this year, early this year, really before the pandemic sat in, China's foreign minister sent a message to Thailand's foreign minister saying, well, we're going to give up. And it was the result of interacting with these community groups that convinced us we were making their own moves. When that happened again, the, like the signal was sent globally, worldwide, that small community groups can drive change in developing countries. Perhaps uh, zooming out a bit now, one of the things that I got from your book, which kind of connects the past to the present, is the relationship between China and mainland Southeast Asia, which Mm -hmm. now seems to be kind of closening. And in one part of the book, you refer to China, I think, as making strategic inroads into mainland Southeast Asia via the Mekong River. Um, In the case of Laos, you suggest that the country seems to be becoming, and I quote, a zone of strategic competition amongst uh, outside powers. We hear a lot, of, a lot about China's growing influence in the South China Sea, but do you see China's influence in the Mekong River region also as a kind of geostrategic uh, issue? Certainly. It always has been ever since the, you know, prior to the Cold War, during the Cold War, and now. China's always had a geostrategic plan and strategy for its for its backyard and it's changed over the years and and now the the control and strategy seems to be about managing flows whether it's river flow flow of electricity commerce 
the, these 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 levers are certainly falling more and more into China's hands. But that's not to say that that it's going to be a China-driven century in the Mekong. Countries like Vietnam and Thailand are reacting strategically. These two countries themselves are being driven closer and closer together um, as China deepens its influence. And that's kind of a new thing in the Mekong. The countries of the Mekong never really had deep international relations. They had always interacted with the countries far away from them, whether it's colonial powers or security allies, like Thailand's a security ally of the United States. They were more outward oriented, and now they're becoming a little bit more linked up and, and, and forced together to think creatively about how to promote a common Mekong identity and autonomy from outside influence. So that's something to keep watching. As we're talking about how states compete with each other and also compete to control or exploit uh, their part of the Mekong River, are we seeing the end of the uh, so-called stateless region of Zomia that Scott depicts in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed? I, I think that the natural resource base can be conserved. I think the, you know, the world's largest freshwater fish catch, there's still a way, there's still time save that. The Mekong's pulse, flood pulse, still can be productive for the people of, of the Mekong. It's not too late for any of that. But for Zomia, yeah, I think that this is, you know, this is its swan song if it's still there. James Scott postulates that Zomia disappeared in the 1950s. These Zomian qualities of autonomy and liberty and, and individual traits that are, you know, extremely different from the how the upland peoples are extremely different from the lowland peoples. I try to find it and look for it in my book. And I think I do find these, these cultural traits uh, and, and traditions and rituals. And I find people who are trying to preserve them. Like it, the chapter I write about the Aka people who are in China and in Thailand as well as a transboundary ethnic group and how they're actually linking up, but their linking up kind of makes them, you know, less Zomian and more modern, if you will. I do think that, you know, we just can't go back to a time where if an ethnic group that's up in the hills or in the lowland margins doesn't want to participate in what's happening in the state where they can run off and, and kind of flourish and survive. There's too many things going against that type of, of ability and opportunity. You know, even, even, you know, cultural heritage protection won't keep Zomia Zomia because cultural heritage protection in and of itself is something that comes from the lowland. You know, you objectify people and keep them the way they are. That's not what Zomia was or is. So Zomia thrives when systems break down. If we see that in the future as a result of climate change, as a result of poor governance, as a result of the Mekong's natural resource breaking down, then maybe Zomia will come back. But, you know, that's not something I'm fighting for. Before we conclude, we always ask our interviewees um, if they're working on a new project and if you could tell us what that project is about. Well, uh, you know, I work at a think tank and uh, I lead a team of researchers that, um, among many things, we are trying to build better connections to the way that people look at the Mekong and view the Mekong. Uh, so one of our projects is something new called the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker. Uh, it's an online platform. It's openly free and available uh, to anybody who wants to 
to use it and to see what's visualized there. It uses GIS data, so that's, you know, visualized geo, geographic data to provide what we think is a full picture of infrastructure development within the Mekong. And, and for the first time, you can get a picture of, of, say, what dams look like from satellite images um, or find out really robust sets of descriptive information about projects. And you can also, you can ask the tracker certain questions like um, how many dams are being built in Laos and it will tell you by conducting a, a query search uh, and it's quite easy to use and in fact today we just launched a, a third data set we've got two data sets that were published on the launch one is power generation assets so that's like coal power plants and hydropower and solar and wind where you can see the rise of solar in the region We've also got all the roads, rails, and waterways in the region, high-speed rail, urban rail, these, these um, you know, newer, more innovative forms of transportation. And today we published our industrial spaces data set. So you can see where all the special economic zones and industrial zones and new airports are in the region to get a feel for how the region is industrializing and, um, and linking together. And then there's a whole bunch of environmental and social data there that, that you can overlay with it to see how these projects impact the environments and communities around them. Brian Eiler, thanks for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, published in 2019 by Z Books. Thanks, Patrick. It's been been, a real pleasure. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. As always, thanks everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with this part of mainland Southeast Asia, like Jerome Whittington's Anthropogenic Rivers, the production of uncertainty in Lao hydropower, or Martin Saxer and Duan Zhang's book, The Art of Neighbouring, Making Relations Across China's Borders. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 